Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In April 2006, the Institute held a two-day symposium about copyright and intellectual property titled Comedies of Fair Use. In this session from the vault, Lewis Hyde talks about owning art and ideas. Lewis Hyde is a cultural critic and scholar whose work focuses on the nature of imagination, creativity, and property. He is best known for his books, The Gift, Imagination and the Erotic Life of Property, and Trickster Makes This World, Mischief, Myth, and Art. So this book is a long muse on the problem of owning art and ideas, which is a much fraught topic these days. And under the topic often of intellectual property, a term I don't like either for the word intellectual or the word property. Um, But actually, let me begin with some remarks about property because part of the puzzle is how do we think of property and how do we think of art and ideas under that heading? And so there's a famous old remark of Blackstone's, the British jurist, who says, ownership is that sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in total exclusion of the right of any other individual in the universe. (laughs) Or if this were my literary contract, it would say, in media yet to be discovered, in universes yet to be discovered. (laughs) So this idea of exclusive right and the right to exclude is one of the ways that property gets imagined. In fact, Justice Scalia has said that the hallmark of a property interest is the right to exclude others. Well, of course, with particularly incorporeal art and ideas, this is a puzzle because for millennia, people have thought that certain things are by nature non-excludable. They are by nature common. And I have some examples in the book of older ways of imagining our relationship to art and ideas. For example, some interesting work has been done in about why there was so slow to get intellectual property rights in China. And one idea was that anciently in China, the understanding was that knowledge comes from the ancients or the divinities. Confucius says, nothing in my work have I made up. I am trying to be reverent toward the ancestors. I quote a 15th century painter named Shen Zhou who says, if my poems and paintings should prove to be some aid to the forgers, what is there for me to complain about? This is not the way the FBI warnings read when you put the DVD into the disc. So what happens in the 18th century is we begin to invent this idea that that we could figure out ways, and I think usefully so, of owning art and ideas. The pivotal moment is around 1710 when we get the Statute of Anne, which is the first copyright law. Many of you know much of this, but you must allow me to fill it in as if you didn't. What the Statute of Anne does is to give authors and their publishers, and mostly it was publishers at that time, exclusive rights to their work for 14 years. And if you were still alive at the end of that, another 14, so up to 28 years. And before that, in England, there had been a thing called the Stationers Company, which were printers who had monopoly privileges granted by the crown. So one thing that you can say about the Statute of Anne is that, oddly, as it seems to give a a property right, it does something else that is less obvious and is the obverse, which is that it begins to create the public domain. And there are two ways in which it does it. First of all, simply by declaring that there's an end to the term of ownership, things fall out of ownership. And 
that had not been the case previously. That is, if you were a printer in a stationer's company, you had perpetual rights to whatever had been given to you. So it ends the reign of perpetuities in ownership of books and printed things. And secondly, you had to register. If you wanted this copyright privilege, you had to raise your hand and pay a small fee and write your name in the book, which meant that, of course, many things immediately entered the public domain because many people do not care whether they get an income from their work or own it in this exclusive rights way. So the statute of Anne both gives a right and also constrains it in certain ways that allows there to be a sphere of public argument and debate where nobody has monopoly privileges. This, however, was not clear right away. So 1710, they write the Statute of Anne, but there was a long 50-year argument over how to read this law. And in a way, we are currently involved in a could-be 50-year argument about how to figure out our right relationship to digital copying. The way this argument got played out often was uh, Scottish printers began to say, well, hot dog, this stuff is pulled into the public domain. I can start printing Thompson's The Seasons in the Sheep Edition. And the London publishers said, no, no, that's not the way we read the Statute of Anne. So there's an argument. And the Scots sort of went back to this idea of non-excludability. Tell you this because I want to read you one of my favorite quotations. This is uh, during these arguments. So it's 1710 to 1775. A Scottish publisher tries to explain that if a writer were to keep his lucubrations to himself, then perhaps he may be said to have a property in his novel. But once he prints these lucubrations, and once somebody else pays for the book and reads it, the person who buys has just the same property as the author had. So this is the argument about non-excludability. I didn't actually, when I found this, know what the word lucubrations meant. And I'll assume that at least one or two of you don't, so I will tell you what it means. The verb is to lucubrate, and it means to study by artificial light. Your lucubrations are the harvest of your midnight's labors. And if you're a philosopher who stays up with a candle or a lamp, what you write are your lucubrations. And the argument here is the only way that you could have an exclusive right to your lucubrations is not to release them. As soon as they are published, they become common property. So that's the Scottish argument. <laughs> I should say, before I go much further, that this is not a book that's against the ownership of art and ideas. I am not against copyright and patent. I think they are very useful social tools. I think the Statute of Anne was a great law. My book is copyrighted. <laughs> I enjoy a meager income from it. The puzzle is, these are tools that we use for certain ends, and, and the puzzle is to figure out how to design the tool and to speak clearly about the, what the ends are to which we are trying to dedicate it. Why have we shaped it this way? And one of the things that got me going in writing this book was, as you all know, in the last 15 or 20 years, much of the old terrain has been thrown into turmoil by the internet and by digital copying. And as a result, many of the old content owners, record companies and publishers in particular, and the movie companies, have been having a panic attack and trying to figure out how to hold on to what they always had. I'm sympathetic to that, but I also feel that there has been serious overreach. One of the things I start the book with is the movie industry and recording industries have promulgated a kind of propaganda campaign on their own behalf about why intellectual property rights matter. And it seems to me a seriously disingenuous set of lessons that they tried to teach. They actually have gotten the California state legislature to pass a law that you have to teach this in the high schools. If you're a Boy Scout, you can get a merit badge called Respecting Copyrights. <laughs> <laughs> One thing they regularly say in the curricula is that uh, there's no difference between physical property and intellectual property. This is an out-and-out -out falsehood. And in fact, it is the important difference that the, the whole reason that we need to think about copyright and patent 
is that incorporeal art and ideas have a completely different nature as they circulate among us. So to elide that difference is to erase the basis from which you need to have the discussion. But typically they will show a film and say that downloading a, a digital file is the same as stealing a book from a bookstore. And it may be in some sense, but the important distinction between physical and, and non-physical properties is lost. This is, I think, from the Boy Scout curriculum. Students who have learned to strictly respect the intellectual work of others in order to avoid plagiarism already have a solid foundation for understanding the laws of copyright. This is also false. Plagiarism and copyright infringement are two distinct categories. Plagiarism is using other people's work without attribution in certain communities. It's an ethical mandate that we put upon our students, for example, in teaching institutions, whereas copyright infringement is distinct. And particularly, they use the word respect here. Often the argument is that we should respect the author or the creator, but part of the point in a democracy is that if we want to have real arguments about each other's work, respect is not always the issue. Being able to use other people's work because you don't respect them <laughs> is sometimes what we would like to have happen. So these are typical of the way that the, these campaigns frame the issue. The final one, which was one of the things that got me ticked off and started on this, was I was at my college. I teach at Kenyon College in the fall. And the librarian called me, and they'd gotten a letter from the motion pictures and recording industry and so forth which said, we hope you are teaching your students about intellectual property. You really should, because we're going to come after you if you don't. And they had this long argument at the end of which they said, after all, theft is theft. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, you know, that is true. I couldn't figure out how to argue against it right away. So what you see is that, you know, when you get to the tautology, you know you're at the end of the framing argument. And in a sense, my book is an attempt to think, well, what are the other framing arguments within which we might discuss the problem of owning art and ideas, especially if we value having a cultural commons. What are the tautologies we might use to declare the bottom line that goes with that value? And so my project was to begin to answer that question by going back to the founding generation in the United States. I was partly prompted to this. You may know in the middle 90s, the Congress extended the term of copyright for 20 years. And many of us thought it was a dumb idea. It was literally a taking from the public domain and a giving to private interests. And they had a lot of ingenious reasons why we had to do it. But one thing that was puzzling was how hard it was to get anybody to say that there was some value to having a public domain and protecting it. And I began to wonder if there wasn't any historical reason for this. If it had no political currency, what had political currency was the property argument. And I guess the word currency here is probably what <laughs> you can apparently buy the Congress for small amounts of money. I thought maybe if I looked back at American history and tried to understand some of the foundations out of which these things came, we could think about how these arguments get played out publicly. The question was, what were the founders in this country thinking about when they first designed some of the rules which have become the rules of intellectual property? So I'm going to tell you some of what I concluded. Of course, there wasn't any intellectual property then. This is a very modern term. It only really appears in the 20th century. So there's a bit of a puzzle about how to read what the founders were thinking about because they don't use that term. But they were thinking about the circulation of knowledge. I came upon the earliest essay that John Adams ever wrote, a political essay, was an attack on the Stamp Act. And I knew the Stamp Act as a kid as, as an example of taxation without representation. That was why it was a bad thing. Adams' essay never touches on that question at all. It's entirely about knowledge and how you control knowledge. And his argument is that what 
feudal powers and aristocratic powers and ecclesiastic powers in Europe had done to control knowledge was to control knowledge so as to keep the populace in a state of staring stupidity. If you look at Adams' essay, you can see how he's thinking about impediments to the circulation of knowledge and why it matters to not have them. I end up at the end of this chapter with a sort of list of the language by which the founders, some man like Adams would have understood these questions. And, and so one of them is that, first of all, they understood the ownership of art and ideas, patent and copyright, to be monopoly privileges. That was the term they would have used. So that what you give to an author, such as myself, is a monopoly to control his or her own work. But they were very suspicious of monopoly because their experience for the last 150 years in England had been that monopoly privileges were one of the ways that the crown doled out favors and therefore controlled people. And so they took monopoly to be a tool of despotism. And questions about commerce that might lead to giving somebody monopolies should be decided by the parliament, not by the crown, and should be treated with great caution. First of all, when they thought about what we now call IP, they wouldn't have thought about it in terms of property, but in terms of monopoly, and also that it was a privilege. There's an old distinction in this material about whether you have a natural right or a statutory right that's a creature of society, and they leaned on the statutory side that these were privileges given by the state. They were not things that you had by nature. They understood the idea that giving these rights encourages ingenuity, is how they would have put it, and that that was a good thing, that you wanted to give people some reason to do the work and to solve what's called the problem of public goods, where things which are by nature common are hard to earn a living at, and so you need some way to protect them. They knew that. Another issue for them was, I think I touched on this, this business of what's called perpetuities. That is to say, property rights that last for a long, long time or for an infinite time. And again, their understanding was that this was one of the ways that aristocrats in Europe had controlled power over the centuries, was to have rules of inheritance like entail, which you tie up your properties for generation after generation. So perpetual monopolies are forbidden by the genius of free governments. This is James Madison. You begin to think, okay, if you're not gonna have a perpetuity, you need some limit on the time. And finally, put in positive terms, these ways of limiting monopoly privileges were there in order to serve political and religious liberties. That is to say, if you wanna have a public sphere in which people can argue freely about what's going on, you need very little inhibitions to the circulation of knowledge. In particular, you need to be cautious about giving people monopolies in the realm of expression. And then they were interested in what's been called civic republicanism. This is an old model of what it is to be a public citizen. And in it, the idea is that property is not there simply to enrich the individual. Property is there to give you a basis from which you can become a public actor. So there's sort of two steps to the property regime in the civic republic. One is, yes, you do give people fee simple rights to their land and so forth. You do give people copyrights and patents. You try to empower individuals through property grants and a basis of property. But then the question is, why have you done this? To what end have you given these people these things? And the answer is in order to become civic actors so that you might gain something called civic virtue. This is the frame within which somebody like John Adams would have understood these rights. Then the bottom line tautology is that these people are trying to set up a self-governing nation. That was the problem they were trying to solve. How do you have, for the first time in history, a people who are well enough educated and can have a sufficiently complex discussion to decide how to govern themselves. And the answer was, you certainly don't begin to set up barriers to the circulation of knowledge. You have to have things freely circulating. So in this frame, the reason that you limit property rights in art and ideas is because democracy is democracy. In the last political campaign, 
an example of the kind of things they might have been worried about. In the state of Missouri, uh, Robin Carnahan was running for Senate against a guy named Roy Blunt. And the Carnahan campaign put up a 30-second ad in which they showed a clip from Fox News of Blunt being interviewed by Chris Wallace. So it's a political ad, and it tries to put Roy Blunt in a bad light and so forth. Fox News went after them for copyright infringement. They said, we own that clip, and you must take that ad down. And it's nuts. The case has not been adjudicated, but the day the case comes to trial, this will be thrown out under what's called the fair use statute. I'm absolutely certain of this. But the fact is that fair use has turned into a defense, not a right. And one of the puzzles in a political campaign, when you have two or three weeks left in the campaign, if somebody begins to use copyright monopolies to suppress speech, they will succeed because it takes time and money to respond to such things. That would have astounded the founders that, that you could intervene in a political campaign and claim a copyright that would take something off the air. So the first piece of this answer from the founders is about democracy. But let me actually jump to a thing that this came out after my book was published. I mean, the question is, in the scientific community, how do you manage the circulation of ideas? This is in the August in the Times, there was a piece about people who are working in Alzheimer's. And the problem is to try to find what are called biomarkers. You want to find chemical markers in the body such that you can begin to study when Alzheimer's appears, early markers, and, and so forth. The problem is large enough and complex enough that it turns out to be very difficult to do in sort of siloed research communities. So about 10 years ago, people from the government, NIH and so forth, from the drug and medical imaging industries, from the universities, from nonprofit groups, got together and said, let's stop patenting these things. Let's figure out how to share our data. So here is one of these people. This is a guy from the University of Pennsylvania. It was unbelievable. It's not science the way most of us have practiced it in our careers, but we all realized that we would never get biomarkers unless all of us parked our egos and intellectual property noses outside the door and agreed that all of our data would be public immediately. It's not always the case, but in some cases what you want, particularly with large complex problems, you want the data to be available to everybody so that everybody can get many eyeballs on the problem and begin to work with it. But let me tell you the third issue that comes up as I read these founders. First, democracy. Second, about, about communities. The third is a question about personhood, how we imagine what a human being is. My assumption is that the ways that we set up our property regimes, the way that we imagine how we own or not own things, enable or disable certain ways of being human. They encourage or discourage certain ways of life. These two examples I just gave would be simple cases in point that if anybody can suppress speech during a political campaign, it becomes harder to have a political campaign and therefore harder to be a political person. Or if scientific knowledge is so gated that it's hard to have the conversation you need, then it's hard to be the scientist who can work at that level with that kind of conversation. I have a, a long attack on Emerson in this book because Emerson has this remark about Franklin. He says, where is the instructor who could have taught Franklin? He was a unique individual. And if you know anything about Franklin, it's nuts because Franklin took instruction from every place. And the way to imagine him is not as a unique individual. He was unique, but the uniqueness was partly his ability to be an intellectual host, to take into his mind the world around him so capaciously that he could do things that other people were not doing. I found early on a wonderful remark from the German writer Goethe. He asked himself rhetorically while conversing with a friend, what am I? Everything that I have seen, heard, and observed, I have collected and exploited. My works have been nourished by countless different individuals. 
by innocent and wise ones, people of intelligence and dunces, childhood, maturity, and old age have all brought me their thoughts. I have often reaped what others have sown. My work is the work of a collective being that bears the name of Goethe. My work is the work of a collective being that bears the name of Goethe. Often the argument is set up whether we should think of ourselves, as Goethe does, as sort of collective and common beings, or whether we are individual and unique beings. And it seems to me that this is actually a false distinction, that we are always simultaneously both. But since Emerson, if you ask that question in the United States, the answer tends to fall on in the individualist side, and the other side becomes less visible and less, has less presence as a public actor. The book is set up around the idea that we might have a cultural commons, and this language, of course, comes out of medieval and early modern Europe where there was common land, streams, forests, fields, and so forth that were used under use rights by commoners in the village. And common land was eventually subjected to a thing called enclosure, as you know. So in the 19th century particularly, a lot of common land begins to be fenced and made into private land. So the second and third chapters of this book, the second one is, is a sort of long muse on how we might imagine a commons, taking things out of this agricultural background, but trying to think what would be usefully brought forward into the present to think about cultural commons. Actually, even in the 18th and 17th century, printed works were thought of in this way. The language of the commons and of enclosure, I found one example from like 1670, where they speak of printed works as either enclosed or common. So it's, it's an old way of taking the agricultural trope and applying it to the cultural trope. Famously, there's an old essay of Gerhard Hardin's called The Tragedy of the Commons. So many people know that as a point of departure, as if a common land may work in small communities, but as soon as you begin to get a lot of people, a lot of sheep, a lot of cattle, the commons will collapse. It's actually a useful entry into the debate because Hardin's point is most embodied commons have carrying capacities. You can only put so many sheep on a meadow, and if you put too many on, it will collapse. So the topic of carrying capacity is important to have in this. But two things. One is Hardin's essay is wildly ahistorical. It turns out, of course, that commons in Europe did not collapse, were not tragic, because they were rule-governed. That people in any particular village had lots and lots of constraints on how they used the commons, and the constraints were there to make sure the commons were durable. One way to think about cultural commons is to think similarly, what rules might we have in place such that we might make the cultural commons durable? One of these rules was that if people encroached upon the commons, commoners were allowed to beat them back. Commoners had a right to throw down encroachments. Once a year, commoners would beat the bounds, meaning they would perambulate the public ways and common lands, armed with axes, mattocks, and crowbars to demolish any hedge, fence, ditch, style, gate, or building that had been erected without permission. If someone sowed grazing land with wheat, villagers would destroy the crop by turning their cattle out to feed. If someone installed rabbit warrens where they did not belong, villagers would arrive with spades and dig and root them out. Such interventions and perambulations were convivial affairs. In the north of England, laborers, crowds of boys, and local constables made up the annual procession, the village providing them with cakes and beer, they walked their rounds during Ascension Week, which is to say that protecting the commons and celebrating Christ's entry into heaven were one and the same. Annual perambulations assured the longevity of the commons. Most of their history is therefore comic rather than tragic, if by comedy we mean a story with a social basis, a festive mood, and a happy ending. And then I'll read you one other thing about comic commons. There's a wonderful legal theorist named Carol Rose who's written a lot about this, and she has a chapter in a book called The Comedy of the Commons. 
And she points out that in the United States, one of the places where you find legal protection of a commons is in regard to highways and open navigable waterways. There's a lot of law that says that people cannot move in and trump the passageway, that these have to remain in the commons. To figure this out, she goes back into English law, and uh, I'll just read you some examples. There's a tradition in English law that prevents private landowners from enclosing land used for customary festivities and recreation. An English case from 1665 upheld a community's customary right, held from time out of memory, to dance on otherwise private ground at all times of the year for their recreation. Another case a century later preserved a right to play cricket on otherwise private ground. A later Scottish case preserved the right to play golf on the links of St. Andrews, not only for inhabitants, but for all who shall resort thither. A British case allowed the inhabitants of a parish to erect a maypole in a certain piece of enclosed ground of a private owner in the parish and to dance around and about the same. A case preserved the right to uphold an annual horse race. A very early example recognized a common right to parade in great jollity a homemade dragon over otherwise private ground. Public dances celebrating spring or midsummer's eve or the memory of an ancient battle all make good examples of the comedy of the commons. For they not only follow the more the merrier rule, but belong to the kind of jocular customs whose enactment is social life itself. Community and common ground cannot be separated here. The latter is the stage where the former has its merriment, a reward that could be called returns to scale, but is more simply named the common good, or better yet, the comic good. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.